The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 59 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 55, Mayhem Over Manhattan. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by John Buscema, inks by George Klein, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in August of 1968. That's right, folks. Once again, we have a new inker on the book, and this time there is a definite difference, and I will point that out to you as we go, but it's something I kind of like. Starting off with our cover here, it's a pretty nice cover, I'll be honest. It's a little crazy, a little chaotic, but I can run with that. It looks good, and even if I'm not 100% behind it, it's still a great-looking cover. There's a lot of really great line work and a lot of great detail in the Avengers and in the villains that makes the cover work for me better than it would normally. Starting off with our opening splash page, we've got a really crazy looking ship that is being used by the Masters of Evil to transport the Avengers back to their hideout in the tenements. I really like the ship. I think it kind of looks like a floating robot head, arms, and torso, and it reminds me a little bit of kind of the upper body portion of the first generation Terminators from Terminator 3, the T1 models that had those kind of arms that came out and that head and torso. Obviously below on the ship, there's nothing on the the Terminators. There was kind of a big bulky track system and, you know, one doesn't necessarily lead to the other here, but it's kind of reminiscent to me. Also on this page, there is a narration box trying to get us back into the story and it describes the Avengers being at their lowest ebb. And I really kind of question that, given some of the things that we've seen the Avengers go through in the last 55 issues, I have a hard time believing this is the lowest ebb. When Captain America quit the team right about the time that Wasp and Goliath came back to the team, and they had to go face off against Kang in the future, it was certainly a high point of storytelling and certainly ended on a very high note for the Avengers. But I think that's one example of it being a lower ebb, a lower point for the Avengers than their current conditions, their current status. In fact, if I'm being really honest, the Avengers being captured like this by the villain is really kind of a cliche at this point for two-part issues. So again, not really fitting the lowest ebb description So I mentioned that we have a new inker, and we see his work very evidently on the opening splash page, and then on this next page, there is a ton of cross-hatching and very, very fine line work done to add texture and background where there would otherwise be minimal texture or just solid color. And I like it. It's interesting, and it adds texture to the art. One of my bigger complaints, especially from earlier issues, was either the lack of defined backgrounds or just that they were kind of bizarre monocolors, but like really oddball ones that didn't necessarily fit what was going on or where the Avengers were fighting. This cross-hatching is a 
different way of approaching these backgrounds that fills them with something that's a little bit more than that color, but is really still pretty innocuous and not detracting from the art. And I really like it. So as I mentioned, the Avengers are being taken back to the Masters of Evil's tenement lair. So we see the Masters of Evil kind of discussing what has happened and mentioning their, their new relationship with the Crimson Cowl. And then we see the Avengers kept on this bed protected by lasers so that if the Avengers should try and break out, the lasers would in theory kill them. As we'll see in a few minutes here, that that doesn't really work out very well for the Masters of Evil, but it's a nice theory anyways. And then additionally, we see that Wasp is still being maintained in a jar by Claw, who's little creepy here. Claw mentions that she amuses him and that he may take her back to his headquarters in Africa as a pet. The fact that Claw is keeping the only female Avenger on the team at this point, keeping her contained in this jar, and the way he refers to her as being a pet, it's definitely an uncomfortable moment, and it's something I would have actually expected more from the X-Men villain Mastermind, who is... Super, super creepy. Even in this time period, Mastermind actually gets worse in the 70s under Chris Claremont's writing. But here, Claws, it's definitely mildly cringeworthy and uncomfortable. Now, as the Masters of Evil are transporting the Avengers back to their base, Radioactive Man brings up a point as to why are they bringing the Avengers back to this base. And Radioactive Man brings up a good point, is that they could have just killed the Avengers right now. And again, it's a very valid point, and it's a solid example of villain self-sabotage, which we see constantly in comics in general, but especially early on in comics, the Silver Age into the Bronze Age, where villains will be in a very strong position to defeat the heroes once and for all and they'll stop and do something or they'll make a decision that is very much counterproductive to their own self-interests like here bringing the avengers back to their base and not just straight up killing them because that would certainly be the better idea but if the masters of evil killed off the avengers right away well then we wouldn't have much of a comic book would we and again i think this is somewhat in response to the comics code where there is a limit to how much violence you can show in comics and the idea that good has to triumph over evil things like that that play into this idea where villains had these really great plans the plans work out really well and then somehow the villain has to screw up enough that the hero can recover from their earlier mistakes and then eventually triumph over the, the bad guy. So the Masters of Evil make contact with the Crimson Cowl, who oddly enough is still in costume. And I say oddly because at this point, as far as we know, Crimson Cowl has already identified himself as Jarvis. So I don't know why he's gone back to wearing his costume, although it will make sense here in a little bit. As we progress to the issue, there'll be several little hints like this telling us that something is not quite as we thought it was with Crimson Cowl. But the Masters of Evil contact their overlord, I guess is a good term, and return to their base through a hangar that opens up in the kind of wreckage of this tenement building. Reminds me a little bit of how the basketball court at Xavier's mansion opens up to reveal the hangar. It's not quite the same, but it's, it's a similar feel. 
Now that they've landed, the Masters of Evil make their way off of the ship and begin escorting the Avengers out of the ship and into their secret headquarters. And Melter goes to talk to Crimson Cowl, who berates him for being a full five minutes behind schedule. And again, this is a little bit odd. It reminds me a little bit of how the Mad Thinker addresses things on these very tight timetables. But as we'll see further into the issue, there is a little bit more going on here, and it will make more sense when we get to that big reveal. So again, while Melter is talking to the Crimson Cowl, Claw is bringing the Avengers into the base, and in doing so, he has secured the lasers that are not holding the Avengers in place, but keeping them from escaping. He's got them attached into this kind of sled that's got them restrained. And unfortunately for Claw, Goliath has regained consciousness, breaks out of his confinement, and comes after Claw in a really rather aggressive manner. Like, Goliath actually goes for Claw's head right off the bat. And if it weren't for the quick action of Crimson Cowl to subdue Goliath with a gas pellet, things would not have gone very well for Claw. Goliath caught him completely off guard and got him by the head. With Goliath's size and strength, all he had to do was squeeze and there would be very little claw left. And it's a little extreme, a little surprising for a hero. Now, I have to say that I love Goliath's chutzpah, but it unfortunately doesn't really get him very far. Also, it's interesting that based on the art here, it's described as a gas effect, but it looks a lot like something that would come off of Radioactive Man. So I expected it to be Radioactive Man, not Crimson Cowl who saved Claw. Of course, after Claw is rescued, Crimson Cowl berates him for being an overbearing simpleton. And he even says that the title of Masters of Evil is basically wasted on these villains because they're idiots. And although Crimson Cowl is not wrong, Claw doesn't respond very well to this. So he lets loose with his sonic powers, and somehow Crimson Cowl survives, only to turn his gas gun on Claw and not even really threaten him, but drive almost a fear of God into Claw, such that Claw is on his knees, basically begging for his life. And it's kind of impressive the level of sadism we see out of Crimson Cowl and the cold and calculating nature of him. Not only does he berate Claw for Claw's mistake, he is just as willing to destroy Claw over it. But Claw is currently serving a purpose, so he doesn't. But Cowl takes an obvious joy in bringing that level of fear into Claw. And it's actually kind of impressive. Once Crimson Cowl is done with Claw, he gathers all of the Masters of Evil together and shows them his master plan, which involves aiming a hydrogen bomb at the Empire State Building and effectively holding New York ransom. Now, in addition to this hydrogen bomb, there's actually a compartment built inside where Crimson Cowl places the Avengers. And Crimson Cowl basically says either we detonate this over New York if they don't give us what we want, or if they do give us what we want, we take it up to sea and we detonate it anyway killing the Avengers. They'll be just as dead either way, so if we get what we want, we don't blow up New York, but we still blow up the bomb and kill the Avengers. This is a bit of an escalation, really. A hydrogen bomb? That's quite impressive. Previous villains, not necessarily Avengers villains, but previous villains have 
tried very hard to get their hands on nuclear weapons. In this case, we don't even see Crimson Cowl trying to get the weapon. He already has it. And the implication is that it's of his own design. Right? He describes it as a new type of hydrogen bomb. And then it's also got this special cargo compartment just for the Avengers. So obviously this, again, plays into the idea that Crimson Cowl is not someone to be screwed with. However, it also rather beautifully plays on Cold War fears. Again, we are only a couple of years removed from the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in general, the threat of thermonuclear war is still a very valid fear. And the way I look at it for us modern comics readers is the idea of using terrorists in the post 9-11 world. It's touching on a cultural fear that we have from, in their case, a near miss, in our case, a very real event, so that it gives us something to relate to. It's a fear we understand. The fear of nuclear war, the fear of terrorism. Interestingly enough, in both of these instances, they're both targeted at New York City landmarks, obviously. 9-11 was the World Trade Center. This is the Empire State Building, again predating the World Trade Center, but similarly iconic in the New York skyline. So it certainly hits on that Cold War fear and Cold War mentality. There is also a little bit that does hit for us as modern readers, having lived through you know, the last decade plus of the war on terror and, and the post 9-11 world. Now obviously, because they're villains, the Masters of Evil love Crimson Cowl's plan, and there is a great panel of Whirlwind, Melter, and Radioactive Man, and specifically Radioactive Man and Melter, because, again, Whirlwind's helmet precludes a lot of facial expressions, but Radioactive Man and Melter have these great facial expressions. I love the coloring and the, call it evil joy on their faces, how excited they are to kill the Avengers with this really cool, elaborate master plan of Crimson Cowls. And so the Masters of Evil load the Avengers in, and they've timed it so that the Avengers just start to regain consciousness as they slam the hatch shut, trapping them inside this tube, only to find out very soon after that they can't get out and that they are trapped in this bomb. Crimson Cowl, however, doesn't just want to end the Avengers' fear or horror there. So he's made one little part of this bomb transparent so that they can see out. And as they look out, they find Crimson Cowl addressing Jarvis. Which is weird, again, because last issue we revealed that Jarvis was in fact the Crimson Cowl. And when Jarvis first arrives, he's got a very blank expression on his face. And then Crimson Cowl tells Jarvis to awaken and remember what happened. And suddenly Jarvis comes to and is horrified to find out that he has led to the destruction of the Avengers. And Jarvis confesses that he only did what he did because he thought that the Avengers would triumph. Right? Again, the Avengers are the heroes. The heroes always win. So it doesn't matter what Jarvis does because the Avengers are going to win out in the long run and everything's going to be okay. And as Jarvis comes to grips with this, he begins to beg for the lives of the Avengers. And he tells Crimson Cow, you must let them live in the name of all that is human. And this statement so enrages Crimson Cowl that he rips off his cowl and his mask and reveals himself 
to be the robot we saw before, Ultron. So this is the part of the story in which we actually find out that Crimson Cowl was in fact Ultron and that in some way, shape, or form he had Jarvis under his control and that the reveal from last issue was basically a setup by Ultron. Now why Ultron has chosen to reveal himself in this manner is a little confusing and kind of unknown, but from here on out there is no confusion that the Crimson Cowl is in fact the robot known as Ultron 5. I say Ultron 5 because he is the fifth iteration of Ultron at this point. We haven't seen the other iterations yet, but we will in a future issue about three to four issues ahead of us, and then subsequent versions of Ultron will be appropriately numbered as such, Ultron 6, 7, etc. One of the things I love about this, again, is Jarvis's facial expressions. We get the really great facial expression from Jarvis's reveal last issue, and in this issue, we get a very different reaction from Jarvis. Instead of that twisted, evil, angry look, we get Jarvis just filled with utter horror and it's a very real expression and it's a a bit heart-wrenching when you realize that Jarvis has been so deceived that he has led his friends and compatriots to their deaths and that when he begs for their lives Ultron is completely heartless so as I mentioned throughout the first 10 pages of this issue because this really comes at the halfway mark of the issue there are a few things that lean towards the idea that Jarvis is not Crimson Cowl to start. For one, there is the exacting schedule. Again, kind of like Mad Thinker, but it does tend to be a kind of robot stereotype that strict adherence to schedule. There is the fact that Crimson Cowl is extremely cold and calculating even towards his own allies. And then there's the fact that Cowl survives a blast from Claw's sonic weapon. And then obviously here we find out that he is in fact a robot. So I really enjoy the fact that there are these clues dropped throughout the first couple of pages of this issue that lead us to believe something else is going on. I also love how cold and intentionally cruel Ultron 5 is as a character and as crimson cowl and this is towards everyone including his allies because in part jarvis is an erstwhile ally but we've seen this coldness and this cruelty towards his other allies such as claw or melter it's really very apparent that Ultron only cares about what other people can do for him and how he can best use them as assets, and that them being people, their humanity, means nothing to him. It really reinforces the idea of him being a robot. Now, what happens next is kind of interesting to me. After Jarvis begs for the lives of the Avengers and Ultron shuts him down hard, Ultron hits Jarvis, and initially it appears as though he has killed Jarvis, but we find out only a couple panels later that he has only wounded Jarvis and that Jarvis is alive and is able to escape. Now, what I find interesting about this is knowing what we know as modern readers about Ultron and about his personality, the fact that Ultron's personality and brain is based on that of Hank Pym's, I wonder if that was already thought of and incorporated into the character and the idea that Hank Pym would have a difficult time killing someone like Jarvis, someone who has been a close ally of the Avengers for so long. So instead, he just knocks him out. I think it's certainly possible, especially given how close 
down the road, the reveal of Ultron's nature is that this was very much an intentional decision on the part of Roy Thomas and John Basima, and I really love it. Now, as I mentioned, Jarvis survives. He's not in great shape because as he runs away, he gets buried under a pile of bricks by the melter, but he manages to survive and seeks help, eventually coming across Black Knight, which, again, a very interesting choice because in Jarvis's mind, he doesn't really know that Black Knight is going to be on his side. He certainly has no idea of the change of heart Black Knight has had, but he's literally out of options. So Black Knight is the only one who could possibly come and help the Avengers. And thankfully for... Jarvis, Black Knight is willing to do this. Or, as he puts it, die trying. You know, Black Knight, I'm sure, remembers the beating he got from the Masters of Evil last issue, as this has probably only been a day or so, if that. So, he's got a pretty good idea of what he's walking into, and yet he is still very willing to come and face it. And so, using his Pegasus, Black Knight is able to find the Masters of Evil's special floating ship, and blasts his way in, only to almost immediately be fired upon by Melter. Now, I have to take a little bit of issue here, because I feel like Melter, with his weapon and his power set, taking pop shots inside an aircraft is probably one of the worst ideas in history. Especially when you consider that they are also flying around with a hydrogen bomb. Now, nuclear physics being what they are, and I do have at least some level of knowledge with this, hitting the bomb like that would not cause it to actually explode in a nuclear explosion, the, the typical mushroom cloud, exceptionally high energy explosion you think of. There are certain things that are required to make that happen, and if anything, the melter's weapon would cause that to not function at all. However, you still have a giant bomb full of radioactive material, and blasting holes in it and melting parts of it is still a really bad idea. So yeah, Melter using his weapon inside at all is generally bad, but in these particular conditions, it is disastrously bad. And unfortunately for Melter and the rest of the Masters of Evil, Black Knight is able to punch a hole in the bomb with his laser lance and free the Avengers, who immediately go to work on the Masters of Evil. Black Panther makes impressively quick work of both Melter and Radioactive Man. Of course, because these characters are all villains, though, they don't really fight well together, and so Claw and Whirlwind really kind of mock Radioactive Man and Melter for being taken out the way they were, and the rest of the Avengers begin to re-engage with the Masters of Evil. Goliath actually finds Ultron's little hiding hole where he planned to broadcast his ultimatum from, but interestingly enough, Ultron really doesn't get involved in this fight. He really lets the Masters of Evil take over here, and the Avengers do a pretty good job of taking out the Masters of Evil. I especially like Hawkeye making a makeshift bow out of parts that he finds. As he says, a piston, a crowbar, and a hunk of wire, and it's instant Robin Hood. I'll be the first one to admit that there's no chance in hell that that is going to work for many reasons, but especially the crowbar part. Crowbars don't don't bend very well. Having said that, I still really like Hawkeye's improvisation, and it's just a fun little comic book thing, you know? So with the help of Black Knight, the Avengers do manage to make, I don't want to say quick work, but they manage to take out the Masters of Evil without too much effort. Radioactive Man suffers a similar fate to what he did the last time you 
faced off against the Avengers and he gets wrapped up in metal. Whirlwind, after throwing Black Panther around, makes a break for it because he doesn't want to give up his good inside gig here as Wasp's driver. Right, he's got an, an inside cover in the Avengers mansion, and he doesn't necessarily want to give that up. So Whirlwind actually makes his way out of the fight. Black Panther lands a just super painful looking hit on Claw, catches him with both feet while Claw is basically jumping into it. Have you ever seen someone inadvertently like turn into a punch and it just makes it that much worse? This is that times like 10. But in the end, the Avengers are able to subdue the rest of the Masters of Evil. And as the issue wraps up, we find the Avengers talking to Black Knight about Jarvis and the fact that he was the one who sent Black Knight to rescue the Avengers. And we get a fairly heartwarming reunion between the Avengers and Jarvis, where Jarvis explains what his motivations were. And we find out that Jarvis's mother was in fact very ill and has been for months and he doesn't have the money to pay for her treatment. So when this opportunity came up so that he could pay for her treatment, he took it because he thought the Avengers would take care of the situation and that it wouldn't be a problem that they'd be able to take out these villains like they did every other set of villains. And then Jarvis tells the Avengers, call the police, I'll repeat my story to them, you know, we, and we can be done with this. And instead of turning him over to the authorities, washing their hands of him, the Avengers take what I think is a very fitting, a very Avengers stance towards Jarvis, and they forgive him and give him a second chance, not only to, you know, not betray them, but to basically be their butler to stay on and do his job with them. They still trust him. They still care about him. I've talked before about how the Avengers, especially in this era, is really a kind of second chances kind of team. And that really extends not only to the Avengers themselves, but to their kind of greater circle, their greater family. Jarvis being a key member of that family. And and this level of willingness to forgive and to accept really is a hallmark of heroes and one of the things that separates them from villains, right? They don't hold a vendetta. They're not looking for vengeance. They accept that Jarvis is human and has made a mistake, that he is repentant and they are willing to accept him for who he is and work with him again. And that's really cool. And so finally, speaking of that dichotomy, we find Ultron at the end of our issue swearing his vengeance against the Avengers, saying, you shall all die by the hand of Ultron 5. Again, I, I love the comparison here when you've got the Avengers forgiving Jarvis and welcoming him back into the fold, and then Ultron swearing vengeance against the Avengers because they basically screwed up his plans and didn't die on cue. And that's our issue. Overall, I like this issue a lot. There are a lot of very cool, not Easter eggs, but bits and pieces that lead you to the the big reveal midway through the issue, and that when you look back over the last few pages, you realize, yeah, it makes sense that Ultron was Crimson Cowl, that the Crimson Cowl wasn't a human, they was a robot. Also, again, the depth of character development we get from Jarvis is wonderful, and I love how the Avengers are willing to take him back in. We also get more Black Knight, which is, in my book, always a good thing. Now, one thing I didn't mention throughout the issue, and I do want to talk about for a second, is there is some really interesting social and meta commentary going on with regards to Black Panther. Now, I don't think I've ever mentioned it on this podcast. I think I've mentioned it on Therefore I Geek. I'm a big fan of Kevin Smith, 
And in particular, one of the, my favorite things that I think Kevin Smith has ever done is the beginning of chasing Amy, specifically when you have the character of Hooper X talking in the comic book panel about the introduction of black superhero characters, because I think in general, he's kind of onto something. And between that scene and the scene about the inker uh, that precedes the, the panel scene, it's one of the most accurate depictions of a comic book convention I think I've ever seen, especially the, the conversations and the people involved. Now, where I think that the Hooper X character gets it right is the attitude towards characters of color in general throughout these comics. You know, Hooper X talks about, you know, derogatory terms being used to introduce characters of color, be they hero or villain. And in this issue, we see Black Panther being referred to by Ultron as jungle bread. And then also from Melter and from Radioactive Man, they refer to Black Panther as jungle come lately. And both of these are really inappropriate ways to refer to Black Panther. Now, I, I get that the character is actually the king of a jungle nation. But there are enough negative, both stereotypes and slurs that are used against African Americans using the phrase jungle something, right? The implication of either them being monkeys or going back to the jungle, any number of those kinds of things that are all offensive at worst, in poor taste at best, even in comics in the 1960s. Now, while I get the idea of having villains do it, and that distinguishes them from the heroes, it's still really uncomfortable. Like, I read these things and I just go, oh, oh god, oh, if, if someone sexually said that, it would just be so unacceptable. And sure, in part, that is a, a modern take on it. Certainly, we have not solved all of our social issues, but I think, to a certain extent, language like that has been deemed inappropriate in most social circles. But even in the 1960s, it feels like that's really kind of an extreme thing to say, extreme way of putting things that's really kind of unnecessary. And it really doesn't help the feeling of separate and alienation that is somewhat common with African-American characters in comics in general. Again, I'm, I'm glad that it's not coming from the heroes, but the fact that it's on the page in general makes it a little bit of a tough read at times. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. If you'd like to be a part of the conversation, send your questions and comments to Andrew at AvengersAssembly.com. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 56, Death Be Not Proud. All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.